section forty one of a history of our own times volume three by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter forty seven the death of lord palmerston part one unarm eros the long day's task is done and we must sleep a long very long day's task was nearly done a marvellous career was fast drawing to its close down in hertfordshire lord palmerston was dying as mirabeau said of himself so palmerston might have said he could already hear the preparations for the funeral of achilles he had enjoyed life to the last as fully as ever churchill did although in a different sense long as his life was if counted by mere years it seems much longer still when we consider what it had compassed and how active it had been from the earliest to the very end many men were older than lord palmerston he left more than one senior behind him but they were for the most part men whose work had long been done men who had been consigned to the armchair of complete inactivity palmerston was a hard-working statesman until within a very few days of his death he had been a member of parliament for nearly sixty years he entered parliament for the first time in the year when byron like himself a harrow boy published his first poems he had been in the house of commons for thirty years when the queen came to the throne he used to play chess with the unfortunate caroline of brunswick wife of the prince regent when she lived at kensington as princess of wales in eighteen o eight being then one of the lords of the admiralty he had defended the copenhagen expedition of the year before and insisted that it was a stroke indispensable to the defeat of the designs of napoleon during all his political career he was only out of office for rare and brief seasons to be a private member of parliament was a short occasional episode in his successful life in the words of sadi the persian poet he had obtained an ear of corn from every harvest it was only during the session of eighteen sixty five that lord palmerston began to give evidence that he was suffering severely at last from that affliction which has been called the most terrible of all diseases old age up to the beginning of that year he had scarcely shown any signs of actual decay he had indeed been for a long time a sufferer from occasional fits of gout lately in hands as well as feet during the winter of the trent seizure he had been much disabled and tortured by a visitation of this kind which almost entirely crippled him but in this country the gout has long ceased to be an evidence of old age it only too commonly accompanies middle life and indeed like black care in the poet's verse seems able to cling on to any horseman but during the session of eighteen sixty five lord palmerston began to show that he was receiving the warnings which death in mrs thrale's pretty poem is made to give of his coming he suffered much for some of the later months his eyesight had become very weak and even with the help of strong glasses he found it difficult to read he was getting feeble in every way he ceased to have that joy of the strife 
which inspired him during parliamentary debate even up to the attainment of his eightieth year he had kept up his bodily vigour and the youthful elasticity of his spirit so long that it must have come on him with the shock of a painful surprise when he first found that his frame and his nerves were beyond doubt giving way and that he too must succumb to the cruel influence of years the collapse of his vigour came on almost at a stroke on his eightieth birthday in october eighteen sixty four he started mr ashley tells us at half-past eight from broadlands taking his horses by train to fareham was met by engineer officers and rode along the portsdown and hillsea lines of forts getting off his horse and inspecting some of them crossing over to the anglesey forts and gosport and not reaching home till six in the evening earlier in the same year he rode one day from his house in piccadilly to harrow trotting the distance of nearly twelve miles within one hour such performances testify to an energy of what one would almost call youthful vitality rare indeed even in the history of our long-living time but in eighteen sixty five the change set in all at once lord palmerston began to discontinue his attendances at the house when he did attend it was evident that he went through his parliamentary duties with difficulty and even with pain the tiverton election on the dissolution of parliament was his last public appearance he went from tiverton to brocket in hertfordshire a place which lady palmerston had inherited from lord melbourne her brother and there he remained the gout had become very serious now it had flown to a dangerous place and lord palmerston had made the danger greater by venturing with his too youthful energy to ride out before he had nearly recovered from one severe attack on october seventeenth a bulletin was issued announcing that lord palmerston had been seriously ill in consequence of having taken cold but that he had been steadily improving for three days and was then much better somehow this announcement failed to reassure people in london many had only then for the first time heard that palmerston was ill and the bare mention of the fact fell ominously on the ear of the public the very next morning these suspicions were confirmed it was announced that lord palmerston's condition had suddenly altered for the worse and that he was gradually sinking then every one knew that the end was near there was no surprise when the news came next day that palmerston was dead he died on october eighteenth had he lived only two days longer he would have completed his eighty-first year he was buried in westminster abbey with public honours on october twenty seventh no man since the death of the duke of wellington had filled so conspicuous a place in the public mind no man had enjoyed anything like the same amount of popularity he died at the moment when that popularity had reached its very zenith it had become the fashion of the day to praise all he said and all he did it was the settled canon of the ordinary englishman's faith that what palmerston said england must feel to stand forward as the opponent or even the critic of anything done or favoured by him was to be unpopular and unpatriotic lord palmerston had certainly lived long enough in years in enjoyment in fame 
it seems idle to ask what might have happened if a man of more than eighty could have lived and held his place in active public life for a few years more but if one were to indulge in such speculation the assumption would be that in such an event there must have been some turn in the tide of that almost unparalleled popularity and success fortunate in everything during his later years lord palmerston was withdrawn from chance and change just when his fortune had reached its flood it is hardly necessary to say that the regret for palmerston was very general and very genuine privately he can hardly have had any enemies he had a kindly heart which won on all people who came near him he had no enduring enmities or capricious dislikes and it was therefore very hard for ill-feeling to live in his beaming friendly presence he never disliked men merely because he had often to encounter them in political war he tried his best to give them as good as they brought and he bore no malice there were some men whom he disliked as we have already mentioned in these volumes but they were men who for one reason or another stood persistently in his way and who he fancied he had reason to believe had acted treacherously toward him he liked a man to be english and he liked him to be what he considered a gentleman but he did not restrict his definition of the word gentleman to the mere qualifications of birth or social rank his manners were frank and genial rather than polished and his is one of the rare instances in which a man contrived always to keep up his personal dignity without any stateliness of bearing and tone he was a model combatant when the combat was over he was ready to sit down by his antagonist's side and be his friend and talk over their experiences and exploits he was absolutely free from affectation this very fact gave sometimes an air almost of roughness to his manners he could be so plain-spoken and downright when suddenly called on to express his mind he was not in the highest sense of the word a truthful man that is to say there were episodes of his career in which for purposes of statecraft he allowed the house of commons and the country to become the dupes of an erroneous impression personally truthful and honourable of course it would be superfluous to pronounce him a man of palmerston's bringing up is as certain to be personally truthful as he is to be brave and to be fond of open-air exercise and the cold bath but palmerston was too often willing to distinguish between the personal and the political integrity of a statesman the distinction is common to the majority of statesmen so much the worse for statesmanship but the gravest errors of this kind which palmerston had committed were committed for an earlier generation the general public of eighteen sixty five took small account of them not many would have cared much then about the grim story of sir alexander burns's dispatches or the manner in which palmerston had played with the hopes of foreign liberalism conducting it more than once rather to its grave than to its triumph these things lived only in the minds of a few at the time when the news of his death came and even of that few not many were anxious to dwell upon them it was noticed at the time that the london newspaper which had persistently attacked his policy and himself since the hour when it came into existence appeared in deep mourning the day after his death some thought this show of regret inconsistent some declared it hypocritical 
there is no reason to think it either the one or the other without retracting one word of condemnation uttered concerning palmerston's policy it was surely natural to feel sincere regret for the death of one who had filled so large a space in the public eye a man of extraordinary powers and whose love for his country had never been denied dead that quits all scores is the exclamation of the gypsy and guy mannering only a simple untaught version of the sunt lacrimae rerum of virgil which fox quoted to explain his feelings when he grieved for the death of the rival whose public actions he could not even at such a moment pretend to approve whether lord palmerston belonged to the first order of statesmen can be only matter of speculation and discussion he was not afforded any opportunity of deciding the question it was the happy fortune of his country during all his long career to have never been placed in any position of organic danger not for one moment was there any crisis of the order which enables a man to prove that he is a statesman of the foremost class it would be almost as profitable to ask ourselves whether the successful captain of one of the canard steamers might have been a nelson or a columbus as to ask whether under the pressure of great emergency palmerston might have been a really great statesman if we were to test him by his judgment in matters of domestic policy we should have to rate him somewhat low the description which grattan gave of burke would have to be reversed in lord palmerston's case instead of saying that he saw everything he foresaw everything we would have to say that he saw nothing he foresaw nothing he was hardly dead when the great changes which he had always scoffed at and declared impossible came to pass marshal macmahon once said that in some given contingency the chassepots of the french soldiers would go off of themselves such seemed to be the condition of the very reforms which palmerston had persuaded himself to regard as un-english and impossible they went off of themselves one might say the moment he was gone nor was it that his strength had withstood them if he had been ten years younger they would have probably gone off in spite of him they waited out of courtesy to him to his age and to the certainty that before long he must be out of the way but of course lord palmerston is not to be judged by his domestic policy we might as well judge of frederick the great by his poetry or richelieu by his play palmerston was himself only in the foreign office and in the house of commons in both alike the recognition of his true capacity came very late his parliamentary training had been perfected before its success was acknowledged he was therefore able to use his faculties at any given moment to their fullest stretch he could always count on them they had been so well drilled by long practice that they would instantly come at call he understood the moods of the house of commons to perfection he could play upon those moods as a performer does upon the keys of an instrument the doctor in one of dickens's stories contrives to seem a master of his business by simply observing what those around the patient have been doing and wish to do and advising that just those things shall be done lord palmerston often led the house of commons after the same fashion he saw what men were in the mood to do and he did it and they were clear that he must be a great leader who led them just whither they felt inclined to go the description which burke gave of charles townsend 
would very accurately describe what Lord Palmerston came to be in his later days. He became the spoilt child of the House of Commons. Only it has to be added that as the spoilt child usually spoils the parent, so Palmerston did much to spoil the house that petted him. He would not allow it to remain long in the mood to tolerate high principles or any talk about them. Much earnestness he knew bored the house, and he took care never to be much in earnest. He left it to others to be eloquent. It was remarked at the time that the Prime Minister, who is now, and has been for years, far more influential in England than ever Bolingbroke was, wielding a political power as great as any ever owned by Chatham or Pitt, as supreme in his own country as Cavour was in Sardinia, holding a position such as no French statesman has held for generations in France, has scarcely any pretension whatever to be considered an orator, and has not, during the whole course of his long career, affixed his name to any grand act of successful statesmanship. Lord Palmerston never cared to go deeper in his speeches than the surface in everything. He had no splendid phraseology, and probably would not have cared to make any display of splendid phraseology, even if he had the gift. No speech of his would be read except for the present interest of the subject. No passages from Lord Palmerston are quoted by anybody. He always selected, and doubtless by a kind of instinct, not the arguments which were most logically cogent, but those which were most likely to suit the character and the temper of the audience he happened to be addressing. He spoke for his hearers, not for himself, to affect the votes of those to whom he was appealing, not for the sake of expressing any deep, irrepressible convictions of his own. He never talked over the heads of his audience, or compelled them to strain their intellects in order to keep pace with his flights. No other statesman of our time could interpose so dexterously, just before the division, to break the effect of some telling speech against him, and to bring the House into a frame of mind for regarding all that had been done by the opposition as mere piece of political ceremonial, gone through in deference to the traditions or the formal necessities of party, on which it would be a waste of time to bestow serious thought. A writer quoted by Mr. Ashley has remarked upon Lord Palmerston's habit of interjecting occasionally a sort of guttural sound between his words, which must necessarily have been fatal to anything like true oratorical effect, but which somehow seemed to enhance the peculiar effectiveness of his unprepared, easy, colloquial style. The writer goes on to say that this occasional hesitation often did much to increase the humour of some of the jocular hits in which Lord Palmerston so commonly delighted. The joke seemed to be so entirely unpremeditated, the audience were kept for a moment in such amusing suspense, while the speaker was apparently turning over the best way to give the hit, that when at last it came, it was enjoyed with the keener relish. End of section 41